0: You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 16. The 45. At what age do we decide whether music is good or bad? When do our critical faculties or our cultural snobbery properly kick in? Around late September 2004, on the first week back at work after my honeymoon, I passed my co-worker Paul on the stairs. Hi Matt, your wedding presents on your desk, he said with a smirk. And off he went. When I opened the Do Not Bend envelope lying in front of my keyboard, I fully understood that smirk. It was a 45 RPM single from 1965, a copy of the first record I ever owned. In October of that year, at the age of six, I caught Chicken Pox. Leaving aside the itchy spots and the missed school friends, I was delighted when the doctor informed my mother that I must stay at home for the rest of the school term. In particular, it meant I wouldn't have to endure my class teacher, Miss Hudson, until at least the next calendar year. I'm sure we all have memories of a special teacher who inspired us and unlocked our potential. Miss Hudson was not that teacher. When anyone tells me how education has gone to pot because teachers cannot administer discipline, I'll happily reel off a list of sadists from my past who randomly took out their personal inadequacies and disappointments on children. And yes, I'm fully aware that I don't have all the answers and have never had to face 30 knife-wielding Year 9s on a Monday morning. But legally allowing teachers to administer violence to minors is a licence for abuse, pure and simple. Miss Hudson clearly enjoyed casually slapping six-year-old children around, but it was the psychological violence that has stayed with me. As was common with five- and six-year-olds then and now, there were instances of pupils wetting themselves in class. Her response was to write on the blackboard, in large letters, a message. For example, Tommy Abrahams wet himself, where it remained for the rest of the day. Years later, my mother mentioned this, and I asked her why neither she nor Dad ever complained to the school. You were always good at holding it in, she said, so we didn't bother. Fair enough. At the time, Mum worked freelance as a pattern book designer for the rag trade, or the schmutter trade, as she always called it. Every day, she sat at our dining table, churning out endless sketches of new garment designs cobbled together here and there from back issues of Vogue, helped along by the BBC Home Service, and a box of 20 Embassy tipped. Disturbing her during my confinement for anything less than a severed artery was forbidden, so I occupied myself with library books, my brother's junior world encyclopaedia set, and the Paddington Bear box set given to me on my sixth birthday. It had to be reading, because, watch with Mother aside, daytime telly didn't really yet exist unless you spoke Welsh, or enjoyed a school's programme fronted by Redvers Kyle. The only other daytime presence was our twice-weekly cleaner, Mrs Gibson, a kind lady who took pity on my condition and made me hot chocolate between bouts of dusting. One day, Mum told me that Mrs Gibson was soon to give me a special present for being a brave boy. It was to be my very own gramophone record of songs from the film Mary Poppins. I had by now seen this masterpiece twice. Once in the West End, and then when it played the Stamford Hill Odeon, and was understandably excited, shouting, Have you got the record? Have you? Have you? every time she visited. In early December she brought the disc round and that afternoon Mum and I settled down to listen. Within seconds I knew I had been sold a pup. There was no Julie Andrews and no Dick Van Dyke. These were asinine cover versions of Chim Chim Cherie and Let's Go Fly a Kite by Billy Cotton and his band on a promotional freebie given away in exchange for two rappers of Summer County Margarine. The success and longevity of Billy Cotton's career until his death in 1969 still remains a mystery to me. I know he originally conducted the Dambusters march for the film and was undoubtedly up to the job. But being a funny-looking orchestral conductor does not a TV and radio personality make. If it did, then surely we would still speak glowingly of the primetime Sir Adrian Bolt variety hour. Don't let nostalgia geeks tell you otherwise. Billy Cotton was bloody awful. We think of Dick Van Dyke's Burt, mainly for his strange attempt at a Cockney accent, which is perhaps unfair. Listen to him sing Chim Chim Cheree." There's a grace and empathy in his rendition, and an understated star quality that draws you in and makes you stop what you're doing. Billy Cotton's lead singer Alan Breeze was perfectly serviceable tackling the same song. The guy could sing, no question. He was, after all, a former principal at Doily Cart. But like the rest of Billy Cotton's troupe, he was a hack. A session man of the dancehall era, cranking out performances by the yard. At the age of six, I wouldn't have understood any of this. What I did know was that this incarnation of Mary Poppins on the Summer County label was terrible, and I tearfully made Mum and Dad promise me to buy the proper version as an extra Christmas present. Just under four decades later, in 2004, I relaxed from the pressures of combining work with preparing for my forthcoming wedding to enjoy a boozy lunch with Paul, the colleague mentioned earlier. A difference of opinion over some or other band led to a discussion about how and when we discovered there was such a thing as good and bad music. For him, it was his parents listening to sing something simple, a BBC Radio 2 monstrosity in which the Cliff Adams singers took popular songs, bit into their jugular and sucked the last drop of life from them. It became something of a benchmark for Paul, proving you cannot empirically tell what's good until you know for certain what's bad. I told him the same applied to the Mary Poppins record, generously given to me by Mrs Gibson. So to her, Alan Breeze, the marketing department of Summer County, and not least El Maestro Billy Cotton, I owe a debt of thanks for setting me on the path to music which excites, challenges, stirs the emotions, or simply makes the time pass more agreeably. That my friend Paul went on to eBay and sought out a copy of the single means our conversation must have struck a chord. I took the 45 home that evening and showed it to Anita. We've got a late wedding present from Paul at work, I announced, before relating the whole story of Chicken Pox, Miss Hudson, Mrs Gibson, Billy Cotton and Summer County. Who's Billy Cotton, she asked. The single remains treasured, if unplayed, to this day. That was The Forty Five, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Listening to the Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 17. The Model A charcoal sketch of an elderly man, naked save for a posing pouch, sits unframed in a drawer. It's one of many such studies drawn by my mother during the late 1970s. Because the subject spent the better half of half a century sitting as a professional model in art schools and life-drawing classes, it's fair to say that there are probably studies of him lying forgotten in drawers everywhere. The fact that for his entire modelling career he always wore a posing pouch belies his later self-styled title of the naked civil servant, but I suppose everyone has their own right to modesty. Two days before the Wehrmacht invaded Poland, at the age of nine, Mum, along with her older sister Rose, was evacuated from Stepney to an idyllic farm in Borough Green, Cambridgeshire, a place she described to me as straight out of Millie Molly Mandy. Mum remembered a surfeit of fresh eggs and butter during a time of rationing, of staying up late playing cards by gaslight with Mr and Mrs Starvis who owned the farm. When my grandmother received a letter from Mrs Starvis offering to adopt both daughters she was on the first train out of King's Cross to reclaim her brood. The entire family then decamped to Merthyr and Tidfill in Wales where Grandpa Haircut got a job as a barber. By 1943 the worst of the Blitz was over save for the odd V1 rocket and it was considered safe to return to London. Rose, now in her late teens, Took the common route of most young women at the time, training in shorthand and typing at a secretarial college in preparation for years of office torpor. Mum's situation was more complicated. She resumed her education at Central Foundation, a girls' grammar school in the East End, with the intention of passing her exams and eventually studying law. But a wartime shortage of teachers meant that schools were using any excuse to shed pupils. After a few weeks, the headmistress called Mum into her office. What would you like to do when you leave school, Caroline? I want to train as a lawyer, miss. The headmistress quickly deflated her ambitions, stating blankly that such a profession was impossible for someone of her gender, ethnicity and social standing. You are certainly a clever girl, and your art teacher in particular tells me you are very talented, my dear. Have you thought about art school? Which is how, barely into her teens, Mum began the autumn term of 1943 training on a scholarship at St Martin's College of Art on Charing Cross Road. She wasn't the only child in her class there. Fellow students of the same age included an eccentric but amiable lad from Stepney called Lionel Begleiter, who later changed his surname to Bart, and Jimmy Beck now remembered as Private Walker in Dad's Army. I would love to tell of how Mum's dive into the monde of the 1940s art scene opened her eyes up to a new world of delights and possibilities, with afternoons hanging out with Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon in the French house on the Colony Room. The reality was that, by her own admission, Mum was quite shy and bookish. She loved being able to train as a commercial artist, and relished the discipline imposed by her no-nonsense tutors, but found the underground culture of Charing Cross Road and Soho in the mid-40s somewhat intimidating. She was, after all, only 13. Many years later, around 1970, my family sat in front of the TV watching a World in Action episode about men at odds with conventional norms. Bloody hell, it's Quentin Crisp, said Mum. The rest of us had never heard of him. For the next half hour, we watched a very camp middle-aged man in a matching flowery shirt and cravat kick against established norms by simply refusing to tidy up. And the evidence was all around him. His world's end bedsit displayed a level of orgy filth and squalor we rarely see today, He might also have discussed his gay lifestyle and fashion choices, but none of this really registered, only the repulsive state of his home. Indeed, it was such a talking point that for some years afterwards, the most famous quote by Crisp was, There's no need to do any housework at all. After the first four years, the dust doesn't get any worse. You know him? asked my brother Andrew. He used to model in our life classes at St Martin's. At the time, he gave me the creeps, but seeing him now, he looks quite sad. It's as if he doesn't feel he exists unless people are looking at him. A couple of years passed, until the sensation caused by the naked civil servant and John Hurt's portrayal catapulted Crisp from documentary oddity to full-blown celebrity. To a generation who only ever saw gay men on TV in terms of John Inman or Larry Grayson, It was a brilliant and groundbreaking film which afforded Crisp enough media exposure to put away his posing pouch forever, all save for one stint on Thursday evenings. By this time, around 1979, Mum co-taught a life drawing class in a council-run adult education centre on Greenleaf Road, Walthamstow. Her fellow tutor, Nora Mackey, was the kind of person who made humdrum suburbia in the 1970s bearable. She was a professional artist and teacher, whose bohemian demeanour and stout appearance conjured up nothing so much as Marianne Faithful in the physical form of Dame Margaret Nor Nora's long friendship with Crisp ensured that in between performances of his one-man show in the West End, or attending gallery openings, his last regular gig as an artist's model was in this former friend's meeting house in north-east London. Why does he still work for Nora? I once asked Mum after she brought home a few sketches of him. Because she always buys choccy Bickies for the half-time break, she replied. And that's it? That's it. As long as there are plain chocolate digestives, he'll turn up. For some reason, the lure of the Big Apple eventually outdid the lure of McVitie's Home Wheat and Greenleaf Road. And despite previously staying in the Chelsea Hotel on the night Sid Vicious murdered Nancy Spungen, Crisp settled in New York permanently in 1981. Such was the cultural importance of this move that Sting even recorded an Englishman in New York in his honour. His flat on East Third Street soon assumed the same level of squalor as his old London bedsit, but within the arty world of Manhattan, no chic dinner party, no gallery opening, no book launch was complete without crisps, iconic and well-compensated presence. He was happy. He existed. That was The Model, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop. A podcast about random objects from the past. Number 18. The Sixth Floor. A novelty magnet from Dallas, Texas attaches a recipe for almond and clementine cake to our refrigerator. The magnet shows in stylized form the moments Jack Ruby assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald on the 24th of November 1963. The picture misses out a detail of little interest to Americans, but possibly intriguing to Brits of a certain age. In 2015, the company I worked for bought out a US software house and that November they sent me on a two-week secondment to train staff at their office in Richardson, a suburb of Dallas. People like me, who have visited New York are often under the impression that they've somehow done America. What they don't realise is that, culturally speaking, New York City is a relatively liberal, secular outpost of Europe. The heartlands, or flyover states, are another country. I always hesitate to criticise another person's home, and during my two-week stay, I may have missed out on its Latin quarter or its vibrant jazz scene. But my own experience of Richardson was a town where hope goes to die. With its strip malls and identical office buildings, I could have been anywhere a thousand miles north or west. Realtors have sold its level featureless landscape dotted with tech companies as Silicon Prairie, but I wasn't convinced. To an effete Brit like me, Richardson is a giant sprawling Stevenage albeit with slightly better restaurants. With not much to do in the evenings, I sat in my hotel room flipping channels. If you're angry with the BBC and how much they allegedly pay Gary Lineker, an evening trying to find something, anything to watch on an American television will surely cure your animosity towards the licence fee. So I resorted to reading and watching old episodes of The Fast Show on YouTube. And by Thursday, the yawning chasm of the weekend looked like a two-day hell. But I was a metro ride away from Dallas Central. Why not, I decided, take a trip into J.R. Ewing's home city and perhaps finally solve the question of who shot Kennedy? A few decades before, I'd seen Oliver Stone's JFK at the Odeon Swiss Cottage. Because everyone remembers where they were when they first saw Oliver Stone's JFK and I left the cinema, sceptical of both the film and the conspiracy theories it perpetuated. So on Saturday, I got up early and caught the tram into Dallas to see the place for myself. I expected to spend an hour there, followed by a look around the rest of the city, then lunch. Instead, I stayed the whole day. Elm Street, where JFK met his end, looks exactly the same as it did on November 22nd, 1963. When a national tragedy occurs, it is common for a shrine or statue to commemorate the event. But in the case of JFK's death, the whole area has become the shrine. Here is the picket fence. Just below is the grassy knoll, and over there is Dealey Plaza, where the lone uniformed cop frantically tried to clear the area, in the middle of Elm Street, an X marks the spot where the second bullet took away half the President's brain. I would look at all of these later, but first I visited the Sixth Floor Museum, formerly the Texas School's Book Depository. It's easily the best museum I've ever visited. Using exhibits, relics from the day, and audio-visual displays, it quietly takes you through the two days from the Kennedys arriving in Dallas through the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald all the way to the aftermath and the theories surrounding JFK's assassination. The centrepiece of the museum is the reconstructed Fox's lair by the sixth-floor window. I looked out of the window at the X in Elm Street below and at once solved the mystery of who shot Kennedy. It was Lee Harvey Oswald with a rifle from the sixth-floor window of the Texas School's Book Depository. If you ever see footage of Elm Street, be it in a modern-day reconstruction, or there's a pruder footage of the assassination, you get very little sense of how compact the whole area is. It's a narrow street off the beaten track, the kind of insignificant thoroughfare, in fact, where you might find a building used to store school books. The book depository looks for all the world like the humdrum municipal facility it was built as, with low ceilings and windows hard by the street. Oswald was an ex-marine with gun skills assessed by the US military as sharpshooter. But looking out of that sixth floor window on a November morning, I concluded that at that distance even I was in with a chance of hitting a president in a slowly moving motorcade. In fact, the biggest question was how well within living memory a president could tour a city where no one did a security sweep of an empty building on his advertised route. Having done the museum and the gift shop, I had a look around the rest of Elm Street. Standing on the grassy knoll on the point where Zapruder thought he was shooting a cheerful souvenir of the day, another mystery arose. Why could I not name a single knoll grassy or otherwise, anywhere else in the world. Then I did what everyone does when standing on that spot. I videoed Elm Street from my phone. But by now it was starting to get dark. In the main square of Old Dallas, old in Texas meaning before 1950, volunteers were setting up soup kitchens. Half an hour later, I beheld the largest mass of homeless people I had ever seen. India included, in the oil capital of the richest nation on earth. One morning the following week, some of my trainees were in deep discussion about politics. The previous night, they had watched the Republican Party candidates debate and were arguing the toss over whether Donald Trump might make a better president than Ted Cruz. I know we revere men like JFK, possibly too much or too nostalgically, but the contrast between the previous weekend and these two nice, normal people weighing up a demented crook against a dim charlatan merely showed the downward slope of American politics. Who would you vote for? One of them asked me. Um, Adlai Stevenson, I replied, like a smart-ass trying to avoid a political row. And the detail missing from the fridge magnet? Standing with the press corps, looking on as Jack Ruby dispatched the prime suspect, was John Ravenscroft, a young English DJ later known as John Peel. That was The Sixth Floor, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 19. Comedy. A YouTube video clipped from an ITV show recorded in August 1992. The programme featured John Thompson, pre-Fast Show and Cold Feet, doing impressions, two further stand-up comedians and Draylon Underground performing Safeways a song written by me a few months previously. Announced as the new Russian national anthem, it comprises a bittersweet catalogue of the wonderful new shopping experiences available to citizens of the Soviet Union. Because this was a show geared towards single comedians rather than a five-part harmony group, the sound is not great, missing the bass and baritone a little at either end, but it gives a fair impression of where we were as a group. In the early 1990s. The Drelons were booked to play this show called The Funny Farm by Kim Kinney, the producer. Kinney's then day job was to book the acts for the Comedy Store in Leicester Square. In 1992, long before comedians played the O2 or Apollo, the Comedy Store was the UK's premier comedy venue and winning over its hugely critical and often hostile audiences, was considered something of a rite of passage for any comedian wishing to prove their worth. We played a a 1am open spot very early on in our career and came out of it relatively unscathed, but it was clear that the management mostly saw comedy as something that begins and ends with a single stand-up, usually male, spending 20 minutes regaling punters with their best knob gags. A satirical a cappella group was as welcome on its hallowed stage as a strippogram at a meeting of the General Synod. After one subsequent open spot at the Comedy Store, Kinney told us, just after we exited the stage, Sorry, but music acts don't go down well here. When I say told us, I mean shouted to us above the audience yelling for more. Eventually he relented and gave us a full booking on the Friday and Saturday shows. These went down so well that he immediately offered us a slot on the Funny Farm for STV during that year's Edinburgh Fringe. When we began performing five years earlier, it was as much a variety as a comedy circuit. In amongst the stand ups were magicians, ventriloquists, escapologists, and often bizarre speciality acts. For all its alternative tag, a billeted comedy club in the 1980s. Wouldn't have been out of place on a variety poster four decades earlier. Indeed, if you looked at Time Out magazine in the early 1990s, the comedy listings were still announced under the subheading Cabaret and Variety, with the king of the circuit acknowledged by many to be the musician and poet John Hegley, performing either solo or with his band The Popticians. The 1992 Edinburgh Fringe was good to us. We garnered some rave reviews played a lot of BBC radio, and, almost unheard of at the Fringe, made a modest profit on our evening show at the Pleasance Theatre. What we didn't know was that before the decade was out, nearly all traces of variety would disappear from the comedy circuit, with clubs universally equating live comedy with a solo performer holding a mic, and Time Out accordingly retitled its subheading Comedy and Stand-Up. It's not something to dwell on too much. Fashions change, and the growing preponderance of new stand-up on TV was bound to make solo comedians a draw. In addition, the tightening up of fire and safety regulations at venues meant that a single person on a stage was an easier option. With hindsight, our first inkling of what was to come occurred earlier that year. At a gig in South London, we needed to go on first, as we had a second show in the West End later that evening. After a five-minute warm-up, the comedian on compare duty announced us as the first act on. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a great line-up tonight. Usually we start the show with comedy, but for a change we're going to begin with some music. So, please give it up for the draylon Underground. Disaster. We arrived on stage to witness at least a third of the packed room noisily heading for the bar, feeling they could happily skip what they imagined to be a Swingle Singers tribute act. Those that stayed enjoyed us, but the damage was done. The compare ruined what should have been a great gig. There is a cheesy old showbiz adage which says, be nice to people on the way up, because you might meet them on the way down. But after finishing our set... We were anything but nice. Don't you ever introduce us like that again, one of us said to the compare before we left. We're a comedy act, unlike you. The funny farm recording in Edinburgh was in front of a fabulous crowd totally up for a good night. People say that Scottish audiences are hard to please and cite the old Glasgow Empire as the graveyard of comedy careers. Many will quote the time Mike and Bernie Winters played the Empire as evidence. Their live act began with Mike Winters playing the clarinet. A minute or two later, he was joined by his grinning brother Bernie to be greeted by silence, save the solitary heckle. Oh, shite, there's two of the bustards. But our own experience of playing Glasgow and Edinburgh outside of festival time proved that Scottish audiences was sometimes hard to please, but adorable if they liked you. That night, our rapport with Scottish audiences was severely tested. The compere, Fred Macaulay, announced us onto the stage, and we began our song.
1: There's a Safeway's opening in Moscow, and a Woolworths in Tashkent. There are branches of Ikea all over the Crimea, just
0: as if they were As we finished the first verse, to spontaneous applause, the floor manager waved his arms to stop the recording. There was something wrong with the lighting, he said, and we would go from the top once they fixed it. We stood around on stage, bantering with the audience, and after a couple of minutes they were ready for another take.
1: There's a safe ways opening in Moscow.
0: Again we reached the end of the first verse to slightly lesser claim, and again the floor manager stopped the recording. They were still having technical problems, and would we go once more from the top after a short break? Off we went again, and thankfully the audience cheered us at the end, although by this time there were far fewer laughs and no spontaneous applause mid-song. We exited the stage, greeted by hugs and handshakes from Kim Kinney. You were brilliant, and well done for coping with all that technical shit. Mind you, he added, you would never have got away with that if you were doing comedy. That was Comedy, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then please hit like and subscribe on Acast. Wherever you get your podcasts,
1: there are branches, and I'll see you next time. All over the Crimea, just as if they were heaven sent. There's a virgin megastar in Vilna, and a next. A 7-Eleven in Tbilisi Selling bounties, Mars and Twix And a Texas sailing the island of Sir Kaelin Means the death of politics If you go to Riga or Odessa Visit the superstore And with a Safeways opening in Moscow we will live forever more no more visits from the kgb no more Arctic prison camps let us celebrate a land that's free with double green shield stamps there's be and
0: Listening to The Souvenir Shop A podcast about random objects from the past Number 20 The Music Box Warning This podcast contains strong language A small wind-up music box that plays Anton Karas's Harry Lyme theme from The Third Man For those who haven't seen the film Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles is a friendly, charismatic, lying crook making tons of money by selling tainted penicillin in the bombed-out ruins of post-war Vienna. During the first decade of my son's life, I spent far too much time working abroad. In a pathetic attempt to assuage my guilt over this, I often returned home each Thursday evening with a toy or knick-knack from whichever country demanded my services. He still has teddy bears from all over Europe, a Lufthansa model aircraft from Germany, tribal masks from South Africa, and the third man music box. You may have guessed by now that many of these were last-minute purchases made while waiting at various airports for my plane home. That he is growing into a kind, funny, intelligent and well-rounded young man is due either to a miracle of resilience on his part or the repeated absence of his terrible, neglectful father. The souvenir shop at Vienna Airport is stuffed with variations on the theme of Mozart, Marzipan, Klimpt, Sacherturter, Strauss and, of course, the third man. Its theme is one of those earworm pieces of music known by millions, even if they don't know its name and have never seen the film. I bought the Harry Lime theme music box for 10 euros, on the same day that I returned to vote in the 2016 Euro Referendum. This is certainly not the place to argue the pros and cons of Brexit. I voted in much the same way as I suspect most other people did, oblivious to such trifling complexities as the Customs Union or the Northern Ireland protocols. If anyone asked me at the time, I probably gave the trivial reason that I didn't want to make my ordeal at various airports even worse by not being able to join the EU citizens' queue at Passport Control. I touched down at Stansted on the 23rd of June, in a country where, despite our differences, we mostly rubbed along fine, and returned to Vienna on Monday the 27th, leaving behind a country racked with division and discord. The same minicab driver took me to Stansted each week picking me up at around 4.30am. During the previous months, we'd passed the journey genially discussing the music of David Bowie, favourite Bond films or the prospects for Tottenham Hotspur in some or other upcoming fixture. This time he brought up the subject of Brexit, asking me how I voted. For my sins, I then endured a lecture along the entire length of the A505 which roughly encapsulated the editorial line of the Daily Express for the previous decade. We have no way to protect our borders, he said. All our laws come from Brussels. The Spanish are stealing our fish. Our country is being overrun with terrorists posing as asylum seekers. On it went. After telling me that the French are our natural enemy, he paused for breath. Hold on a moment, I said, immediately regretting my interjection. We haven't fought a war with France since Waterloo, and they've been allies in every major conflict since. Oh, maybe you're thinking of the Fashoda incident of 1898. The what incident, said the driver. Fashoda. It was some kind of standoff in Sudan between Britain and France during their African land grab, where we almost went to war until both sides realised it wasn't really worth the bother. All right then, what about President de Gaulle saying no, he hated us? He might well have done. But he was mainly suspicious of whether the UK was serious about being part of the European project. I think he may have had a point. I tried changing the subject to the forthcoming European Championships. If anyone still remembers the 2016 Euros, the England team's performance was truly dire, leading some wags to comment... In a fortnight we've been dumped out of Europe twice. Once by people who live in Iceland and once by people who shop there. He wasn't having any of it and fell into a sullen silence. I realised at that moment what went wrong and what's really been going wrong ever since. I would wager that this was the first serious conversation about the EU my driver had with someone who voted Remain. But I have to admit it was probably my first conversation about the EU with a committed leaver. He voted in good faith based on what he'd read, what people in positions of trust told him, be it face-to-face or watching TV, along with whatever gut instinct he felt confirmed by carefully targeted social media. And in my own Guardian reading, podcast subscribing, tofu eating, targeted social media idyll, I was probably the same. I arrived at the office in Bank Vienna later that morning, where two dozen faces in the project room turned to me, ranging from blank to smirking. What the fuck have you done? said the Belgian project manager, without wishing me a good morning. I shook my head sadly. And who the fuck is this Boris? he added. Who oh, indeed? I shrugged. I was working on a new system implementation with a team of technical and functional consultants. Within the team were Hungarians, Germans, Italians, French, Serbians, Poles, people from all over Europe working towards the common goal of getting the job done and returning any remuneration plus bonus to our respective families. At one o'clock the entire office went for a long lunch where they pumped me for information on what happens next, mistakenly believing I had some special insight into the UK's political relationship with the rest of the EU. For want of anything else to say, I cited the British media as a prime cause of Brexit, and trotted out the much-repeated quote from Rupert Murdoch as evidence. When I go into Downing Street, they do what I say. When I go to Brussels, they take no notice. Through the various trials and tribulations since 2016, through even the torpor of get Brexit done, I have held on to the congenial atmosphere of that lunch, where people of all nationalities, needing no borders to protect, ate schnitzel and drank Austrian wine with not a natural enemy in sight. I think we'll get back to that one way or another, either in my lifetime or in my son's. My simple hope is that we don't have to suffer any more Harry Limes along the way. That was The Music Box, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.